All right, well, good morning, Parkview. My name is Doug. I'm the campus pastor here at Parkview East. It's a joy to be able to worship with you this morning. Um, if you are new, we want to welcome you. We're glad that you are worshiping with us this morning. We'd love to get a chance to get to know you. I would invite you on your way out uh, to stop by the Welcome Center. There's a Connect card. Give us some information. Let us know how you'd like to be connected. There's more that happens around here than just worshiping on Sunday morning. As vital, as important as this is to the body of Christ, there is more that happens. And so um, we'd like to get you connected to some of that stuff. Uh, as a church, we have been walking through a series. And really this fall, what we are trying to do is this, it's a simple series. We want to be real upfront honest about who we are as a people. Uh, what this unique mission is that God, we believe, has called Parkview East to. Um, and, and one of that has to, uh, what that has to do with is ultimately um, the type of disciples that we're trying to make, right? So the process by which we make disciples is we invite you to gather, um, to worship. We want you to grow um, in community, and then we want you to go on mission. Um, and then if we step back and look at, at these disciples that we are producing, um, what we're looking at now is what are these, uh, these marks of authentic discipleship. So if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, um, there are certain things that should be evident in your life. First, we talked about how a true follower of Jesus enjoys God's presence. It's an amazing thing that the God of the universe invites us into his presence, gives us access to his presence, and the fact that we long for his presence should be a mark on our lives if we're a genuine follower of Jesus. Then we turned our attention to the Bible. And what role does the Bible play in the life of a believer? We believe that as a follower of Jesus, we should be a people who live God's story. We should know his story, what, what he tells us in his word. We should love his word. We should be in his word. And we should live it out, right? That we should obey what he commands us to do, right? We should be a people who are marked by his word. Last week and this week, we are turning our attention to his love. As a follower of Jesus, we should love God's people. We should love God's people. Thomas Hoke was here last, year, last week and opened up Ephesians 5 to us and gave us this kind of living illustration of what it looks like to love one another, to understand the covenant love that God has called us to, and then what it looks like then to extend that love beyond us. This morning we're going to continue that uh, by looking at John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. And so if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to take it out, open it up to John chapter 13. We will spend, um, these are two very simple verses, but they are two incredibly beautiful verses um, that should really be central to our life as we think about what it means to live among other people, right? One of the things that we know and just evident that we are here this morning, God has not created, created us to live in isolation. He has created us, he has called us, and he has placed us into a covenant community called his church. And part of what we have to figure out as a people is how do we love one another? How do we interact with one another in light of that calling? And so this verse is, um, these two verses are beautiful. Um, verses 34 and 35, I'll read them for us this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can just raise your hand and, and Craig will walk around and just place one in it. So if you need a copy of God's Word, just put your head, hand up and uh, he'll, he'll bring one around to you. Craig right here is one up here that needs one. Um, verse 34 and 35, I'll read these for us and then I will pray and we can um, dive into this morning's message. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. 
Father God, I thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for the privilege, the opportunity that we have as your people to assemble, to worship you, and to learn from you, Father. We invite your spirit into this place right now, Lord, and, um, and our prayer is that your spirit would be here, that, that he would reveal um, your son in this text, Lord, um, that you, the Father, may be glorified. Uh, we ask that you would take these words, which we believe to be eternal and to be true, Lord, and that you would write these words on our very hearts. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, believe it or not, um, there was not much fanfare for this. In fact, I found hardly any articles online about it. But just in the last couple of months, we celebrated a 20th anniversary. Um, this 20th anniversary, you may not know about it, is it has been 20 years since the release of what I would say is, I would put it in my top five albums of all time, and perhaps one of my favorite, perhaps one of my favorite hip-hop albums. It was the, um, it's the Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. 20 years since the Miseducation of Lauryn Hill was released. If you do not know of this album or, or Lauren Hill, I will pray for you. And afterwards, after, after service, you can go out, get on iTunes, YouTube, and, and just give yourself a, a, nice, a nice, easy listening to the album. An awesome, awesome album. Really, really good. It's her only studio album that she has released. And then she kind of is this mythological creature who kind of like disappeared into obscurity. Um, beautiful voice. Um, but uh, awesome, awesome album. One of the things that makes that album, I think, so, so beautiful and so wonderful um, was not just the musical creativity and genius that went into creating it, but also um, the, a theme that runs throughout the album. From one song to the next, it's this idea of love. In fact, after the, the intro track, at the end of it, there's this, you can hear the, the track kind of fade in the background, and, and she's in a class, and there's a classroom that kind of emerges, and there's a dialogue, and the teacher asks, like, what is love? And there's these high school age students that are trying to figure out, what is love? Right? From one track to the next, it's this idea, this theme of love. Love of the former loves in her life and of the current love, even a song dedicated to her, her son. Right? Love is a, it's a theme that runs throughout that album. It's part of the reason why I think it's so appealing because in human nature, that's, that's, a, that's a subject that we can all identify with. Whether it's, it's a love that we have or a love that we want, all of us have something to think about. When the idea of love comes up, we have our minds instantly go somewhere. Likewise, our topic this morning of love is a major theme that runs throughout the book of John. Up until this point, in fact, it, it slowly builds up until John 13. Just the word love only appears 12 times to this point. And then from 13 to the end of the, the Gospel of John, some 44 times this word is spoken. Love is a central theme, not only of this passage, but we also know throughout the Bible. Right? In fact, if you were to take the Ten Commandments, you could summarize those Ten Commandments just by one simple word. Love. Right? The first five have to do with how we love God the Father, and the next five have to do with how we love one another. All of the Ten Commandments, essentially Jesus says, could be summed up with that one word, love. Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards says this, Love appears to be the sum of all the virtue and duty that God requires of us, and therefore must undoubtedly be the most essential thing. The sum of all the virtue that is essential and distinguishing in real Christianity is love. The big idea this morning, folks, is very simple. It's very simple. As Jesus loves me, so I 
should love you. As a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, every single person who, who claims Jesus as their king should be able to say that exact same thing. As Jesus loves me, so I love you. In order to really understand the, the significance, the meaning of these words that Jesus, Jesus utters here towards the end of chapter 13, we have to put them in their proper context. The evening before... This is the evening before when Jesus uh, says these things. It's the evening before he will be crucified. Our passage this morning follows two really significant, very important events that have taken place. The first is the washing of the feet of the disciples. Right before dinner on what would be this Jesus' final night with his disciples, Jesus goes around the table one by one. Many of us know this story well. One by one and, and does the, the, the common job of a servant washes their dirty, crusty feet, right? Puts a towel around his waist, gets down on his knees, and serves these men before they eat. It is on one hand a symbolic of a spiritual cleansing. On the other hand, it redefines how we humbly care for one another. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. The other event that's really critical to understand the significance of this passage is the going out of Judas. That happens right before this. After he washes their feet, Jesus says in verse 21, truly, truly, one of you will betray me. Remember, Jesus is sitting around a table with his closest friends, men who have been following him, who've been learning from him, who've been loving him, receiving from him. And there in their midst is a man, the very man who will hand them over to be murdered. The disciples look at one another in disbelief. One of us betray you, Jesus? Say it ain't so. Peter signals to John with his hand, motioning for him to ask Jesus, who is this that will betray you? So John leans up against Jesus and simply asks, who, Lord? Jesus says to him, it is to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Then John watches. Remember, John's the only one who hears this from Jesus. He watches in disbelief as Jesus would set in motion the events that will ultimately lead to the cross. It's so amazing to think John is the one who has sort of the secret insight as to what is all going on here. And it's John who understands exactly how deep this love of Jesus is. The next words out of Jesus' mouth are the words that we're looking at this morning. There are a couple of things that are absolutely critical for us to keep in mind as we look through these verses. The first is that we remember Jesus is headed to the cross. Right? He knows he's headed to the cross. He knows somebody's going to betray him. He headed into Jerusalem because he knew what was waiting for him. There is no mistake in what's about to happen. The second thing that's important is that he is intentionally using his last hours to develop in his disciples what he wants them to, to eventually be. This is known as the upper room discourse. And he goes from one theme to the next over the next couple of chapters to develop in them how they should ultimately live in light of his absence on earth with them. And the last thing that we should keep in mind this morning is that his words are not just for the disciples gathered around that table on that evening. His words are for us. He says this later in the Upper Room Discourse in 17, 20, and 21. I do not ask for these only, as he's praying to the Father for his disciples. I'm not praying just for the men that are with me, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one. 
So as Jesus closes out this upper room discourse, he doesn't just pray for the disciples that these topics, these subjects that he talked about, the significance of his life, the significance and meaning for love in their life, he didn't want it just to stay with those men. He wanted it to be passed from one generation to the next so that even here this morning, some 2,000 years later, we would understand the depths of his love for us and the significance and the need for us to live it out amongst ourselves, right? His words are for us this morning. So this morning, what we're going to see in these two verses are three things. First, we'll see the exhortation to love. We'll see an example of love. And then we'll see the effect of this love. So first up is the exhortation to love. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. Three things to note about this exhortation. First is who gives the command. A new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you. As followers of Jesus, we acknowledge that by definition, we come underneath Jesus's authority, right? He, he is the one who calls the shots. We follow him. He has the authority to instruct us on how we should live our lives. In 1 Corinthians 6, 20, Paul says, as a follower of Christ, he is no longer his own. He, he has relinquished his own rights and he has, because he has been bought with a price. He says, I belong to Jesus, he, he is over me. Now this, to be sure, is not a popular concept for us today in our culture. And I think if you span from 2,000 years ago, it probably never was, right? We really don't want to come underneath anybody. Some of us more than others struggle with this concept of, of submitting to an authority. Whether it's a political authority, somebody in a family, maybe somebody at a, somebody at a workplace. The idea of coming under authority is a big deal. And it's one that for some of us we reject we reject. As a follower of Jesus, it by definition means we submit to his authority. He commands us. He instructs us. We follow him. That's who we are as a people. That's what unites us together as a people is the fact that we recognize we share one person over all of us. And it's Jesus. He commands us. So who gives the command? Jesus did. And he should command us this morning. Next, I want you to know who the command is given to. He says, to you. He is with those who are closest to him. These men are those who have remained faithful to Jesus. He calls them in this passage, little children. Shows his love for these men. Judas, at this point, when he gives these commands, he's no longer with them. It's given to those who are faithful to him. Remember, when Jesus walked into this room that evening, he walked into the upper room, he was accompanied by those whom he loved and who loved him, who submitted to his authority, who were faithful to him, who were forgiven, eventually would be forgiven by him. He was accompanied by, by, by men who were marked by his love. But we also know, and the thing that blows me away about this passage, about what Jesus does here in chapter 13, is that he was also accompanied by somebody else. There were those who submitted to his authority, but he was also accompanied by somebody who would reject his authority, right? He was accompanied by Judas. He, he was even accompanied by a man who, who would not essentially would lie about Jesus, could, could save him. All of these men, was Jesus was heading to the cross, every single one of these men would abandon him. They would turn their backs on him. Peter would deny Jesus. Right? And I love the fact that what Jesus doesn't do is he goes around the table washing these men's feet. It's amazing. What he does not do, he easily could have done this. He could have gotten to Judas's from one stinky set of feet to the next. He could have got to Judas's feet and said, hold up. 
No. No, 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 no. I know what you're about to do. There's no way I'm washing those things. No way. He could have said that. He could have got to Peter. Peter is about to deny me. Every single one of these men. He could have just gone down the list and said, okay, you love me, you receive me, I'll wash those feet. But he serves every single one of them. Every single one of them. And, and that's an awesome, awesome thing for us to remember, right? Because the truth is, as we think about imitating this love, which really these verses are all about, the truth is there are some people in our life who, well, honestly, just aren't that lovable. They're just not that lovable. Now, there's even a chance that maybe some of you here today may be some of those people as well. Amen. Really hard to love, right? Really hard to love. But Jesus doesn't, it doesn't stop Jesus from serving them. It doesn't stop Jesus from loving them, from washing their feet. See, sometimes these words, these words, they sound great, right? Love as Jesus loved. That's fantastic. I can do that, right? But when it comes to the actual, practical, like daily acting and doing it, you begin to realize it's not so easy. It's not so easy. It doesn't change the standard. It doesn't change. Jesus doesn't say just love those who love you. He doesn't just say love those who are easy to love. Jesus loves Every single one of these men loves them all. And he commands them to do the exact same thing. Last thing just to point out is what is the command? He says here, love one another. We know who said it, who he said it to, and what is he saying? He's saying love one another. In his final moments with his closest friends, he turns his attention to what matters most. Right? Towards the end of his life, he's not going to be talking about trivial things. He's going to be talking about the most urgent, the most important things. He has hours left with these men that he will use to start a movement that we know will ultimately change the world. He says it here in John 13. He says it again in John 14, 21. In John 15, 12, 13 through seven, uh, 12 through 17. The command is simple. Love one another. It's interesting here because it's, he says it's a new command. He says, a new command I give you. But, but if you know your Bible, if you're familiar, these men would have known this is not a new commandment, right? You go back to Leviticus chapter 8, 19, 18. It says the same thing, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Up until this point, there's nothing that's really revolutionary about this commandment. He, God has always commanded us to love one another. But Jesus steps on the scene and says, a new commandment I give to you. This should be interesting to you. It was really interesting to me. There's nothing new about love. When Jesus says it, it does take on a new meaning. Let's take a look at it. First of all, we see, or the next point is the example of love. And this gets to the understanding of what, what's new, particularly about this commandment. And we see it in this example of love. He says, just as I have loved you. Helps us understand the newness of the commandment. What's new about it is the way by which Jesus is loving in the story. 
Two things that make it new. First of all is the method. The way in which we are to demonstrate love to each other. Jesus just showed this in the washing of the disciples' feet. And after he does this, we hear him say a similar challenge in verses 14 through 15. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, after he washes their feet, he says this, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. But that's not all he's referring to here. He's not just referring to these people going from one person to the next, washing their feet just like Jesus did. He gives them an example, but that's not all he does, right? It's not just a washing of the feet that we are supposed to do. If you were, in fact, be able to say, okay, well, then how does this apply to me? I wasn't sitting at that table that evening. Jesus didn't physically get down on his knees and physically wash my feet. Thank you, God, for that, because he would have got a nice surprise if he would have seen these. All right? He didn't physically wash my feet. So as he says to me, you now go love as I have loved you, what does, he, what does that mean for us? Well, we know as we follow the story how the story ends, right? That he doesn't serve you and me. He doesn't love you and me by physically washing our feet. That's not ultimately how he loves us, right? Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his love and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, right? The greatest example, the greatest demonstration of love that we have to follow is the fact that Jesus died for us, for a sinful people who do not deserve anything. We deserve punishment, death, that's what we deserve, so as Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you love one another. He doesn't mean just physically get down and start washing people's feet. He, he means giving your life for other people. As we think about what love looks like for the church, for those who follow Jesus, it looks like death. It looks like death. If you want to love one another... The kind of community that we create here at Parkview East should be a community that as we demonstrate love for one another, it looks like dying ultimately to ourselves. That's how Christ loved us, and as he loved us, so we should love others. He gave his life for us. The method by which we demonstrate this love is ultimately dying to ourselves. But the other thing that's new about this command is not just the example, the method, a pattern that we follow, but it's ultimately the means by which we do it. He also gives us the, the ability to pull it off. Keep in mind, this is a supernatural love that we are to demonstrate, right? Even as you think about dying to yourself, like, that goes against our human nature. It goes against our human nature as a sinful people. As a sinful people, we are selfish, Right? So it takes a supernatural ability to just pull this off. You cannot live out the love of Jesus if you are not connected to the love of Jesus. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at John 15 and talked about what it means to be connected to Jesus, right? A branch that is connected to the vine. You can't love like Jesus if you don't live in Jesus. It's not possible. It's not possible. So he gives us not just a pattern that we follow, something that we copy, right? But he also shows us that you can't do that unless you are connected to Jesus. We are called to not just imitate him, but to remain and abide in him. And the last thing that we see here is the effect of this love, right? He commands us to love. He shows us what that love looks like. 
And now he shows us what happens when we do it. By this, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. Until this point, the mark of a Christian had been like actually following Jesus. For these disciples, they had spent time. Discipleship, apprenticeship was a common thing. Right Back in the day, you would have a rabbi. If you were aspiring to be a righteous, holy person, you would identify a right teacher, somebody who was worthy of you giving your life to, and you would physically follow in that person's footsteps. You would soak up every word that that person had to say. You would follow them. You would learn from them, and you would try to imitate and copy to them. And so if you had wanted to know if somebody whose disciples somebody belonged to, you could just look at them. Who were they physically following? Well, with Jesus not walking on this earth anymore, we, we need to be able to identify one another by a different means. We can't just look and watch who they are following. How will people know that they are his disciples? What will their badge be? Jesus tells us simply, love. It will be love. Love will bind them together. Just, just as Jesus is what brought them together in his absence now, love will keep them together and will let everyone know whom they belong to. This love will serve as a witness to the world, putting on display not the love that they have, but ultimately the love of the Father. We see evidence of this actually happening when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, right? If you just look at the, the early church days in Acts 2 and Acts 4 and throughout the books of, book of Acts, you see how they lived together, how, how they shared what they had, how no one had want or no one had need. Because the thing that was marking them and keeping them together was his love. And they were extending that love to one another. We see throughout church history the importance of love and its effect on the world. When the church actually gets this principle and does it, what can happen? In the middle of the second century, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. Some medical experts think that this was the first appearance of smallpox in the West. Lasted some 15 years, and historians believe it is responsible for killing anywhere from a quarter to a third of the population. Marcus Aurelius wrote of caravans of carts and wagons that would haul out the dead from the city. The ancient world lacked knowledge of how to treat the sick. Their response was simply to flee and to avoid, not come in contact with those who were afflicted. When their first symptom appeared, the sick were thrown into the streets where the dead and dying lay in piles. But where the vast majority of the Roman world showed zero concern for the sick, the Christian response was radically, radically different. Christians responded with love and mercy in the face of sickness and misery. Rather than deserting them, Christians cared for the sick and were responsible for saving enormous numbers of lives. Christians in the early church cared well for each other. It was by the imitation of Christ that Christians simply lived longer than that of the rest of the world. Right? It's, it's no wonder why, you know, 300 years after Christ ascended to heaven, the Roman Empire converted ultimately to Christianity. It was because these Christians were loving one another well. They were living longer than the rest of the world was living. Right? They, they took women where the rest of the world had, had subjected women to just ridiculous role in society. The church brought them into the very center of their message and their mission. They elevated women. The church cared 
for people where the rest of the world, if you were sick, would run from you. If you just trace throughout human history, you see it's the church ultimately that starts throughout history orphanages and hospitals and schools. This is the role of the church. To see those around us who are in need, who are sick, who are discouraged, and to step into their lives, not run from their lives. That's what we are supposed to do. And throughout history, that's what the church's role has been. Now, there are some times when the church has gotten distracted from what its ultimate mission is. And I think there are so many things that, especially you think about our church, that could creep in and could distract us about how we should spend our energy, how we should spend money, how we should spend our time. Jesus tells us very, very clearly what it is that's supposed to set us apart. And it is our love. It's our love for one another. It's our love for one another. You know, I think as a church, we are at an interesting time as well, right? For many of you, maybe some of you just started attending Parkview East and maybe unaware that over the course of the summer, the church bought this complex. It bought this facility for Faith Academy and for Parkview East. And over the course of the next year, it's an awesome thing, yep. Over the course of the next year, there's going to be some construction that happens around here. Okay, and like probably in the next, I would say probably nine months or so, you will see the sanctuary, even where we meet, will start to change shape. Uh, your entrance will no longer be in the back by the dumpsters, okay? <laughs> You'll actually be able to enter from the street where there's parking, parking spots that are marked, okay? It'll be different. It'll be different. There will be a sign on the building, even, that will say Parkview East, that's an exciting time. We've been waiting 15 years for a sign. We're going to get one within a year. I'm really excited about that sign. Well, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. Because as we think about taking this message of love to this community, to our city, we have to remember that the primary way that we are going to maybe share this message, introduce others to this message, maybe even grow if the Lord is willing as a people, is not going to be because we have a sign on the building that says Parkview East. Okay? It's not going to be because we have lots of parking spaces in the parking lot. It's not going to be because we have visibility on Highway 6. That's not going to be our strategy for growth. It's important. Yeah, we want to accommodate the growth. It's important. All right? But it is not what's at the center, at the foundation of who we are as a people and how we grow as a people. It will not be. What will stay at the center if we want to grow the kingdom for Christ, what's going to stay? Love is what's going to stay, all right? It, it, this is the way by which we put God's glory on display for our community. It's by how, notice he says, love one another, okay? He, he's talking to the disciples, and he's saying, Brandon, the way by which but the way by which the world would know you a disciple is by how you love Jeremy. Amen. The way by which Sue, God will know, the world will know that you are a disciple is how you love Robert. It's by how we love as a people one another. Amen. And that as the world looks, they say, okay, we know who they have submitted their lives to, right? And not just will they say that, they'll say, you know what? I want that in my life as well. That, that would be the hope by which we put his, his glory on display. 
is by how we love one another. Right? When people think of who we are as a people, it's very important that we, we, we are firmly grounded in his truth. It's very important. It's very important that we, um, that we care for children. It's very important that we support families and marriages. It's very important um, that we have ministries that grow and that thrive. I think of the youth ministry. But the most important thing, that the thing that all of these other things come out of is the way that we love one another. It's, it's, this is Jesus' plan for his church. The way by which he puts himself, his glory on display for the world. So just a couple of things I'll say in closing to practically kind of bring it home. How do we do this? I think, I think of two categories primarily. One is just think of daily life, your daily life. If you think about what Jesus did, getting down on his knees and washing the feet of these disciples, this was something that happened every day. This was a common, ordinary act, all right? Normally, didn't. what makes it extraordinary is the fact that it's the king of the universe doing it, but normally it's a servant that would do this. It is a common, ordinary, every time you would go into somebody's house, eat a meal, you would do this, right? So as we think of transferring these principles into our life, we should think in terms of what are the ordinary things that we are involved in? What are the common, everyday rituals and activities that... that really make up our life. The places that we work, the home that we live, the neighborhood that we call home, right? How in those common, ordinary things can we show the love of Jesus? Amen. There's also extraordinary ways, right? And this is where it comes down to laying your life down for those around you. You think this is a common, ordinary thing that Jesus did for his disciples. The extraordinary way he demonstrates his love is he goes to the cross and dies for the sins of the world, right? And there are also extraordinary things that we can do. Whether it's living radical lives marked by love and generosity, giving away things that, that we have accumulated, wealth that we create, that the rest of the world would say, that doesn't make any sense at all for you to live like that. We would say, absolutely, yes and amen, right? Because we are marked by the love of Jesus. So think of the ordinary and the extraordinary ways you can do it. The other thing I would just say real quick is, we have a structure at Parkview by which we care and shepherd and lead people. And that structure is primarily not here on Sunday mornings. This is a piece of it, right? But the way we actually get to know the people who call Parkview home is through the context of community groups, right? And you can, there's no fancy word or anything like that that we use, small groups, community groups, whatever. The idea is very simple. Getting smaller in community with people who you know and you love and you call friend. We were having a community group a couple weeks ago. We were talking about kind of how our group works and what we can do moving forward. And we were talking about kind of the plan of when we meet and how we can do things. And as we were kind of talking about this structure, somebody says, boy, that sounds a lot like just being friends. It's like, absolutely. It is. That's exactly what it is. All right? That we would actually spend time with each other outside of Sunday mornings. Right? That as we have needs that arise in our life, and whether you're there now, you will be one day. There will be pain, there will be suffering, there will be sickness. There will be time to celebrate that comes into your life. And our hope would be, as a church who's really loving one another well, that we would be doing that together. Right? That you would not be trying to pull this off alone in isolation. Right? God called us a church. He calls us his body. We are one people. We are supposed to be in each other's lives. And so to some degree, 
to some degree, if, if you aren't connected in some form of community, but you do call Parkview East home, to some degree, you're rejecting the structure by which we've set in place to shepherd and care and love you well. And so I would just invite you to no longer do that, okay? There is every week you could sign up and we have, we have several groups that are started that are just for Parkview East folks. There are some, some of you I know are in groups that are with Central Campus as well. And honestly, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you're living your life within the context of other believers, not just one hour a week, all right? Because when you're doing that, it's hard to love it's hard to love each other well when we only see each other for one hour. All right? All right, let me go ahead and just pray, and then we'll, uh, uh, we're going to have um, Jeremy here in a moment just lead us in um, communion this morning as well. Father God, we thank you, um, Lord, of ultimately this love that we have received from you, Father. And the temptation can be for us to, um, I know for me, to just keep it. Um, and, and, and be stingy with it. Be selective with it, Father. Lord, but I pray that you would um, help each one of us to be quick and ready to extend it to those around us. Lord, that you would help us be able to see those among us or where we live, Lord, um, who are in need, Father, who may be sick, who may be hurting. Lord, and I pray that our response would be that as you have loved us, so we would love them. Lord, and it's not easy. We confess that. There are some people, Lord, that are difficult to love. And so I pray that you would show us just clearly how to do that. Father, that you would thank you that you give us the strength to do that. And I pray that as a people, Lord, that we would remain connected to you as the source of that love. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for these folks, Lord, and these words. Uh, we ask these scenes in your holy and precious name. Amen.